principles of spiritual authority. I'm talking right now, and I'll finish this today, but authority over demonic systems. And we found this in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark when we read about the demoniac at the tombs of Gadara. I'm not going to read all those verses. I just want to read beginning at verse 14. So those who fed the, the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion of demons sitting and clothed and in his right mind. I remind you that a legion was several thousand. It was a Roman term, military term, actually. And um, it meant literally several thousand, four to six thousand. That's how many demons this man had. When the people saw him delivered, they were afraid. And those who saw it told them in the cities how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, how these demons were cast out of the man into this herd of swine that ran down this place into the sea and committed suicide. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, and this is, this is something I, I really should point out, they began to ask him to leave. You know what he did? He left. The one thing you don't ever want to do is ask Jesus to leave. He's not going to force himself on anyone. He respects our sovereign will. He left, and this is what happened. When he got into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed came to Jesus and begged him, please take me with you. However, Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home. Somebody say that. Go, say it again, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Decapolis was the name of a region with ten cities in it. Deca being the Greek uh, prefix for ten. And um, he went, he was originally from this area with ten cities that were closely uh, connected together. And he began to tell everybody, and ten cities were impacted by this man's testimony. This is what Luke records Jesus as telling the man. He didn't just say, go home and tell your friends. But Luke 8 and 38, return to your own house return to your own house father I thank you today for your word that is so powerful I pray that you will speak to us now again I pray for that wonderful thing that is called revelation that comes about when your anointing is present that will enable us to then receive more than just the transmission or communication of intellectual ideas and thoughts and premises but will actually impart into us the creative power of your word. Lord, speak that to us today. In Jesus' name I ask. And everybody said, Amen. Again, I want to say Happy Father's Day, and I'm very keenly aware that today is Father's Day. I'm also keenly aware that when I spoke on Mother's Day, and, and the ladies were so wonderful, they, they literally asked me to do it. I had announced the Sunday before 
that I was going to speak on characteristics of the Jezebel spirit, not knowing it was Mother's Day the following Sunday. Boy, I tell you what, all I can say is they gave me a pass or something. And, but the late, I, I, I quickly scrubbed that idea when I found out it was Mother's Day, and they said, no, you got to do it. And uh, because they didn't want just a, they said they didn't want another saccharine sweet Mother's Day message. They wanted to hear a word from God. And I appreciated very much the response. And we did have a great service that day. Uh, Today, I want to talk to fathers. And I have a strong word for men. And I want us to be aware that all of us are leaving a legacy behind us. We want to be remembered, cherished, and loved. And we want to make a difference in the lives of those that we love. In the spirit of leaving legacies, there are some, these are some actual tombstones that I want to show you. They in some way indicate that the person who passed away left a legacy, whether they intended to or not, and whether this was their legacy, the, the legacy they meant to leave or not, you decide. Look at this first one. Here rests Pancrazio Hunavales. He was a good husband, a wonderful father, but a bad electrician. I tell you anything about how he met his demise? Okay, next one. Look at this. Gustava Guzman, rest in peace. A memory from all your sons, except Ricardo, who did not pay any money. <laughs> That'll teach him. <laughs> Amen. Next time we pass the hat, you better chip in, buddy. Amen. And then there was Brunhilda Halamonte and Lord, please welcome her. (laughs) With the same joy I send her to you. Now, that's from the husband. It's hard for me to see him grieving at this moment. Amen. And then one more, and then we're done. Tomas Chinchilla. Rest in peace, now you're in the Lord's arms. Lord, what's your wallet? (laughs) These are actual tombstones. Each one of those tells you a little bit about the legacy, the person who passed away left. I want to speak to you today about your legacy. You can leave a legacy that will impact future generations. I want to speak this morning from the subject recovering what the enemy has stolen. Over the last couple of weeks, when we spoke on authority over demonic systems in our study on these 12 dimensions of spiritual authority, we talked about this man in Gadara, and we spoke about the first aspect of demonic systems, and um, we talked about what that means. We talked even about how to address demonic systems, that they're bigger than just an occasional encounter with somebody who is demon-possessed writhing on a floor in a prayer meeting that's hissing like a snake that people are casting a demonic spirit out of. I talked about systems that are bigger than just those kind of things. And I talked to you about how to address them. Today, I want to look at the human interest aspects of the story of the man that is the central character in this particular um, revelation of what demonic systems are about. I want to talk to you about the, the, the demoniac, the man in the tombs, the demoniac of Gadara. Now, before I go there, 
I'll just tell you this. I think that if we knew the story of this man's life, it would make a best-selling book that would probably be number one on the New York Times bestseller list for years. We don't know the details of this man's story. Before I get into this, I will tell you this, that it is possible for someone in a moment to make a decision or to come to a point in their life where they do something that can impact future generations so profoundly that their legacy is never forgotten. I preached on Friday night for Global Force here, and I spoke for the first time about a festival in the Bible that you read about in the book of Esther called the Festival of Purim. It's uh, Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And this was the festival that they put into place after Esther went in before the king, her husband, and pleaded on behalf of the Jewish people. Now, up until that time, uh, the king didn't even really realize that she was Jewish. There was an evil guy in his cabinet by the name of Haman that was actually like his vice president. And Haman hated Jewish people, and it went all the way back to the days of Samuel, hundreds of years before, and, and also the days of Saul. You may remember in 1 Samuel 15 that God told Saul to kill all of the Agites and to sacrifice all of their livestock, and, and Saul kept the king of the Agites alive. Not just the king, there were some others too, as we read now. And he spared the best of the flocks. And Samuel came and said, didn't I command you to follow God's word and kill everything? God wanted it wiped out. You see, God knows that stuff you let live today, generations down the road, can bite your descendants. And he wanted that wiped out. And Saul said, no, I... I just saved the best. That's all. We're going to offer a sacrifice. And he said, you've disobeyed the Lord, and it's better to obey than to sacrifice, is what Samuel told Saul. And that very incident is what caused Saul, his kingship, his kingdom, was taken from him because of that act of disobedience. Now, all of these hundreds of years later, there's a man that is in the court of King Ahasuerus, of Babylon that's his like his as I said vice president who is an agite had Saul fulfilled his mission that guy wouldn't have even have been around this man hates Jewish people and sets about conniving plotting scheming to destroy them he knows that the king doesn't realize that his wife is a Jewish lady so he convinces the king to sign a document that the Jews are a troublesome people and they can be wiped out and all of their possessions taken by whoever wants to take them. Here's the thing. The law of the kingdom of that day was when once it was enacted as law, it could not be undone even by the king himself. So the king signs this law, oblivious to the fact that he's just written his own wife's death warrant and he truly loves Esther. And Esther finds out about it because Mordecai comes to her and says, you've got to go and talk to the king. Now, she went, and the result was, since the king could not countermand his own decision, it was already a law, it had been signed into effect, the best he could do, and, which is, and he did this, is then enact another law, enabling and permitting anyone who wanted to fight with the Jews to protect them 
to do so and with a very strong like um, endorsement that don't forget my wife is Jewish here too and so you better fight for them and not against them and nobody said yes sir so they allied with the Jewish people and defeated Haman and his group and the result was that Esther started a day of celebration, two days of celebration actually, called the Festival of Purim that continues to this day. Now the reason this is significant is because Esther had been carried away into captivity from Jerusalem. Now you may not realize it, but what she did is save the whole Jewish nation and race. And here's why. Because they killed everybody else back home, and the only ones that were left were you know, common people that didn't have any education or skills and those that were the children of the bright leaders of their day, they carried these children to Babylon and they were going to re-indoctrinate them. But the, those that were older, no, they just killed them. Their children they left alive, but what they, the, the Babylonian empire would do, it had conquered, it was the largest empire in the world. And they would take people from one place and resettle them in another so that they would intermarry with the people they had conquered and wipe out their national identity. So they killed everybody except for kids and maybe the poor and the beggars and they sent these other people in and they intermarried and the only pure Jewish blood that remained were those that were carried away into captivity. Now, you read about the Samaritans in the Bible and the hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans and you wonder why that was there. The Samaritans were the people that were the product of this intermarriage. And they carried with them their pagan beliefs and all of that. And so it wasn't just to dilute the blood. I mean, we all came from one blood anyway. So don't use that to say that, you know, that that's what God was against. It wasn't that at all. What he was against was diluting the people's relationship with him and their knowledge of God. Because you have all these people that now believe in multiple gods coming in here and intermarrying with the ones that believe in one true God, and the whole faith gets compromised. Now, in Babylon, the only pure Jewish race remains. What Haman was trying to do was destroy them. He did not even realize that he was inspired of the enemy and why he was inspired of the enemy. If he had succeeded, and he almost did, one signature on a piece of paper is the only reason there exists a Jewish race today. The king signed that document. His signature is why the Jewish community still lives. But here's what you need to consider. That decision affected every one of us here too. Because had there been no Jewish race and he succeeded, there would have been no tribe of Judah and Levi. And because Mary was a product of Levi and Judah... Her mother was of the Jew, of tribe of Judah. Her father was of the tribe of Levi. If there had been no tribe of Levi and Judah, there would have been no Mary. Had there been no Mary, there would have been no babe born in a manger. Had there been no babe born in a manger, there would have been no Calvary. Had there been no Calvary, there would have been no Easter. Had there been no Easter, there would have been no upper room. Had there been no upper room, there would be no church, and you and I would not be saved right now. And if we had not been saved, there would be no Christian tabernacle. And this Sunday morning, some other building would be standing on this location. Her decision impacted not only her people, but every Christian 
that will ever live on the face of the earth. What Satan was trying to do was destroy the promise of God that there was coming a Messiah into the world by destroying the race that God said the promised Messiah would come through. He had told Abraham, through you and your seed, all nations will be blessed. God tried to establish this promise and did establish it. The enemy tried to wipe out the seed of Abraham. Wow. When I saw that, it made me realize that things can change on a dime. One decision can impact not only your life, but everybody you know for generations to come. I want to talk to men here today for the next few minutes and tell you you can do something that will impact future generations for years to come. Amen. Amen. The human interest aspects of this story, let me deal with this first. We talk about the man in the tombs. What we never talk about is where he was before he ended up there. You see, the man didn't just show up demon-possessed. It appears that way when you read the Scripture. But the truth of the matter is somewhere that man got started in life and had a past. We get the impression he spent his whole life in that condition. He didn't. Oh, no. This man may have been a prosperous and successful businessman or even a religious leader somewhere at one time. He certainly had a family. Though you don't read about it right there in those verses. I know he had a family. He had at the very least a mother and a father. You've got to concede that much. And knowing that in their society, Jewish people had many children, he probably had brothers and sisters. It's not even a stretch to believe that this man may have had a wife and children. Better answer that. That may be God. Amen. No, I'm joking here. Amen. Amen. He had a mother and a father, brothers and sisters, and very likely a wife and children. Now, the reason I point this out to you is don't believe that this man for all of his life was just an instrument of the enemy. When Jesus delivered him, this is what Jesus said, go home to your house. The man had property somewhere. You get my point now? The man had a house, a residence. He had a place where he used to live that he once called home. Jesus said, go home to your friends. He used to have friends. He had a normal life at one time. He didn't start out this wild, raving lunatic covered with blood and gore where he had cut himself trying to commit suicide, wild-eyed and naked, sleeping in tombs. That's not where this man began life. Somewhere, this man, along the way, opened a door for the enemy to enter his life. He didn't intend for it to be that way. What he did was probably took a little journey into something he shouldn't have got involved in. A little experimentation in something he didn't want anybody to know about. Let me get real with you guys. Come on, I'm talking to you right now. This man faced temptation like anybody else. And somewhere along the line, one day, an opportunity presented itself and nobody would know and he opened a door. He never intended to have that thing control his life. But gradually, what was a temptation became an obsession. He thought, I'll just see what it's like one time. And that one time turned into a second and a third and a fourth time until it became oppression and he couldn't get away from it. And then, because this obsession became an oppression, 
and his conscience began to be conflicted and he realized the danger that he was walking in, he ultimately found himself in a state of depression because that's what the cycle is always like. It's temptation, it's obsession, it's oppression, and then it's depression because I can't get out of this. And I'm messing up my life and I know it. Ask any drug addict, this is the cycle that they go through. And finally, this man came into a state of possession. His downward spiral continued until he lost everything. At house back home, didn't feel like home anymore. And if he had others living in it with him, he lost them somewhere along the way. He left the, De the region of Decapolis and ended up in tombs in a place called Gadara. And perhaps when he saw Jesus, maybe he recognized, that's my hope right there. If I'm ever going to get back my life, I've got to get to this man. Or maybe he didn't know that at all. Maybe he was in such a blinded state that what he felt instead was the agitation of the demonic spirits inside of him when Jesus stepped off that boat. Because they got around Jesus and they just, they had an allergy. They, they didn't want to be where Jesus was. And that man, knowing that something was going on and these demons didn't like that man coming, thought maybe this guy has a, 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 an answer, a solution for me. And he began to run to Jesus. He fell down and tried to worship him. But as I said last week, instead of words of worship, you hear this hideous, grotesque voice that the man himself does not even know cry out, leave us alone. And this man's trying to worship. And instead, words like that are coming out of his mouth. And the rest is history. Jesus set the man free. Now, all of us know that. And in these last two weeks that I've dealt with this, I've, I've covered all of that. But now I want to go from there forward. What I want to know, and to me the compelling question is this. What happened after Jesus set him free? Did he get his life back? Did he recover what the enemy had stolen from him? You see, most of us, the story ends right there. But I, I just can't let it stop there. Because I've walked with too many people through recovery processes and I've seen too many people lose too many things and, and my mind goes immediately to the next question and that is, did he get it back? What happened to him afterward? Jesus did not want him to accompany him. I find it compelling that the man asked Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, you can't. Now, that is counter to anything I've ever seen most evangelists want to do. I mean, most of them, why, sure, you come with me. And they book a slot on TBN. Look what happened in my latest crusade. You know, they're on religious TV and they're giving interviews to Charisma Magazine. I mean, my God, the power of God was in that meeting. And look what happened to this man. And who I'm anointed. Amen. And, and. No, they, they didn't call TBN. Jesus said, you go home. That's what you do. You go home. And the words that Jesus tells this man encourage me because they lead me to conclude at least two things from this. Number one, that the best way to overcome a problem is not run from it. It's go face it. Come on, help me out just a moment now. You'll see where I'm going with this. 
Because most of us, when we mess up, what we want to do is go start over again somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. And particularly men are that way. Yeah, we're, we, we want to we move to another state. We want to, to move out of town. We want to leave everything behind because we messed up. And we don't want the embarrassment of, of all of that behind us and trailing us and, and hovering over our shoulder as we try to live our lives. Let me tell you the difference between men and women. Women can talk about something and get it off their chest. The more men talk about it, the more it gets on their chest. You hear what I'm saying? I'm, I'm serious as I can be. Amen. A man comes home in the evening from the job and the wife says he don't want to talk about anything. That's because he don't want to feel the emotion of that anymore. I punched out. I'm leaving that behind. I want to go home and rest and not talk. And, and women, they, they don't understand they're men because when women talk about something, they feel better about it. They get the emotion out and, and they get free from it. The more men talk about it, the more they get stuck in it. You know what? The more they feel, I'm serious, the more pressure gets on them. And, amen. Because men are, are task-oriented. We're assignment-related. A man comes home and the wife says, the faucet broke and the cat climbed the tree and won't come down. And the man gets exasperated because he thinks the wife is asking him to fix every one of those things. She may have already fixed them. I'm serious. But when men talk about it, they feel the burden of it. And this is why when there's, there's a problem, men go to the cave and women go to the well. Women go talk about it. Men go into solitude and silence and we deal with it our own way and we isolate ourselves from it. Don't talk to me. I, I don't want to feel. Yes, I made a mistake, but that's over now. Let it go. And if you talk about it too much, I'll run. That's what I'll do. I'm getting real with men right now because men don't want to be reminded of what they've dealt with. But Jesus is looking at a man who has lost everything. Somewhere back there, he opened a door that allowed access into his life and into his home on the part of the enemy. And Jesus said, you know what you do now that I've set you free? I don't need you coming and giving your testimony every night in my revival meetings. I don't need you on TBN. I don't need you and your picture in my newsletter. I'm not going to send out any emails about you. I want you to go home. I want you to face it. I want you to fix it right at the house. And what's hard about that is when you go home to what you messed up. You're going to get some... Because to err is human, but to forgive is divine. And not all of us are divine. I kind of fall more in the human column myself. You understand what I mean? And what it means is that you're going to have to walk through some seasons where people hold you accountable. God, I'm preaching right now. And men need that. You know why we need it? Because if you run from your problem and you go somewhere else and reinvent yourself, you know what's going to happen? The same spirit that rose up in the last place is going to show back up somewhere 
in the future, he's going to find you. There is no federal witness program to get you away from the enemy. You hear what I'm talking about? You can change your name, he will still find you. And the reason Jesus said go home is you need to look that bad boy in the eye and say I got delivered from you. I've got victory over you. I'm at a different place right now. And while you may have to endure a few stares out of the corners of people's eyes for a little while, after a period of time, you put the past behind you. I wish I could tell you that we could wave a magic wand and it would all go away every time we've made a mistake. God forgives and forgets. People forgive and remember. I'm being more real than some of you are right now. Oh, I got the blood of Jesus and, you know, I'm sanctified. I have a forgiving attitude. Yeah, let somebody do you wrong and let's see how forgiving you are. They can do five Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers and, you know, and fast for 30 days and you're going to steal. I remember back, way back yonder in 1957 when you did me wrong. Yeah, people hold on to things. Jesus said, go home. Second reason that Jesus sent that man back to his house is I've got a feeling that the story in Jesus' mind is not complete till the man goes home and recovers what the enemy took away. You go back to your house. You go back to your friends and you tell them what God has done. Now, the reason I say this is because I want you to know as men, you can not only get victory from the enemy, you can take everything back that he took from you when you were in his clutches. I need a better response than that. I need somebody to say, I'm getting it all back. All back. Not 99%, I'm getting it all back with interest as you will see in just a moment. You see, everything about God tells me he's a God of restoration. God is all about restoration. From Genesis to Revelation, restoration is the story of the Bible. In Genesis, God promises to restore to man what the enemy stole from him in the garden. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. Someday, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. That's what Jesus, or God, tells the serpent in the garden. I'm about restoration. Amen. That's what God is telling the enemy. In the 23rd Psalms, the psalmist David said, The Lord is the restorer of our souls. When Solomon prayed his dedicatory prayer at the temple, he prayed this, God, if we sin." And we do this, that, or the other. If we turn back to this place and repent, restore what the enemy has taken away. Mm, 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 mm. The biblical account of the nation of Israel is essentially this. It's the story of a people who deceived by the enemy sin time and time again, only to be awakened by the call of God to come back to God and have God restore everything the enemy had taken. God didn't change from yesterday. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
They got carried away to one place and another. But every time they would turn back to God, the story of Esther, the story of Nehemiah, the story of Ezra, on and on and on again, the whole book of Judges, the books of Chronicles are about God restoring what the enemy had taken away. Amen. And even in the book of Malachi, God promises that if you will give your tithe, he will rebuke the devourer for your sake and will restore, open the windows of heaven. Joel said he will restore what the palmer worm and the canker worm and the caterpillar and the locust have devoured and destroyed. Now look, I'm gonna just tell you about me and my pecan pie. When I eat it, you can't have it it's, once it's gone. You may have wanted some, but when I put that last spoonful in my mouth, it's over. You should have spoke up sooner. But the thing about God is the enemy can eat your pie and God will still give it back to you even after the enemy has devoured it. The first four books of the New Testament are about Jesus restoring to man relationship with the Father. And so I just need you to understand this, that to Jesus, the man needed to go home for at least two reasons. Number one, you go home and face it. And you show people that I've given you strength to overcome it. And I've changed your life. And you want to know what changes people in the community around you? It's whenever they see where God brought you from that they know you could not have got to by yourself. Amen. I need somebody to say, there but for the grace of God go I. If God hadn't been for me, I would have been wiped out a long time ago. Mm, 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 mm. The second reason is Jesus sent him home because there was something waiting that was valuable enough to be restored. Now, I need to make a point in this, and then I'm going to close very quickly. Notice it is the, the person that is the demoniac is a man. I want to make the point here today that the enemy is after men. I can tell you story after story in the Bible and point out to you person after person that was in the clutches of the enemy and for every Mary Magdalene out of whom he cast seven devils, I will show you several men because even though the enemy wants our women and our children, he targets men specifically because if he can get the man, he gets the family by default. Help me out now. If he can control men, he gets the children and the wife without even trying. If he can make men stumble and fall, if he can get men in his grasp, if he can warp, warp the minds of men, the rest of society doesn't have a chance. Look at this video that talks about what happens when fathers are not in the home. What do 90% of homeless and runaway children, 85% of children with behavioral disorders, 71% of high school dropouts, 75% of youth in drug abuse centers and 85% of all youth in prison have in common? They all come from fatherless homes. There are over 25 million kids right now growing up in a home without their dad. And for them, Father's Day is just another fatherless day. But it doesn't have to be this way. The numbers show that children with involved fathers have higher self-esteem 
better grade point averages, and they grow up to become the most compassionate adults. Dads, we are vital. The role we play is world-changing. God has given us the ability to completely rewrite the future, not only for our sons and daughters, but for the millions of girls and boys who are right now living without a dad. Now is the time to step up. Our kids need us more than ever. The fatherless need us more than ever. There are kids in this building right now who need a man of God in their lives, a role model, a mentor, someone to say, I'm proud of you, someone to have their back, someone to affirm them, someone to show the love of Christ to them. Not just anyone, not just a friend. They need a man. So do all the dads out there reflecting Jesus to their kids, willing to stand up for the abandoned and giving it all for their family. We say thank you. God is changing the world through you. Your impact will reach further than you can ever imagine. So be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Happy Father's Day. I'm issuing a call in this room right now. Where are the men of God in this house? Man of God, rise. Make a difference in your family and in your life and in the lives of those that you care for. Make a difference. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your struggle was. I don't care what your problem was. I don't care the mistakes you've made. I don't care the, 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 the times you've embarrassed yourself and hurt those around you. God has come to say to you, you're free. You're free. I need, some, I need some men to say that because I just felt something go through this place like a bolt of lightning. I felt change dropping off people's hands just then. I need some men to say, I'm free. Would you do that? Come on, shout it out, men. I'm free. I'm free. Yes, you are. What do you do next? Do you jump on the boat with Jesus? No. You go home. You get back what the enemy stole from you. Take it back. Take it back. Take it back. Take it back. I have to be real and tell you, you might not get the same house back you lived in. It was repossessed. You might not get the same job back that you were dismissed from because of certain behavior. You might not even get the same woman back. You understand what I mean? But I will tell you this, that as a man of God, you have the ability now to look the devil in the eye and say, I'm taking my life back and everything you stole from me with it. I'm getting it back. Sometimes there's too much pain, too much hurt for you to recover some of the things you lost. But here's the promise of God. If the enemy has stolen anything, God will restore everything. God will restore everything. Everything. Proverbs 6 and 30, and I'm getting ready to close. Verse 31, people do not despise a thief if he steals the scripture says, watch this now, because when he is starving, they don't despise him if he steals when he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore, say it with me, seven 
at 700%. Turn to your neighbor and say to you and ask them, do you have any investments doing that good? Seven hundred percent, sevenfold. That's what the enemy has to give back to you. And if he doesn't have enough to give you sevenfold, you he may have to give up everything in his house. Now that's even better than bankruptcy laws in America, because they may take your house, but they can't take your bed. Well, help me out. You can even take the enemy's bed. They can't take the clothes off your back, but if you catch the enemy stealing from you, you can get everything he's got and chase him out of your life naked and wounded where he never wants to see you again as long as you live. Somebody ought to join with me and say, I'm taking it back, I'm taking it back, I'm taking back everything. How do you take it back? Very, very quickly. There's a process of recovery. There are many places in the Bible where restoration took place, where people received back what the enemy had stolen. I love that one place in 1 Samuel chapter 30 where David and his men are at Ziklag and they're away and they're fighting a battle and while they're gone, the Amalekites come and they steal everything, including their wives, their children, their possessions and their goods. And David and his men get back home and there's pandemonium and heartbreak and terror because while they were off to war, the enemy came and stole everything. And in the course of fighting the battles of life, while you're off building a career, while you're building a future, sometimes the enemy comes and steals everything. And David and his men were, were heartbroken. And you know what David had to do first? The first thing you have to do to, before you can recover is in 1 Samuel 30 and 6, he found strength in the Lord. David found strength in the Lord. He strengthened himself in God. What do you need to do? First, get strong yourself. Before you go tackle the devil, get fixed first. Come on, help me out. I'm preaching again better than some of us are responding. Amen. We, you just got saved. Get strong. Know who you are in God. Number two, because I have to hurry through this. In verse number seven, David went to the priest and asked for the ephod. The ephod was the priestly garment that the priest wore when he was doing his priestly duties. What is striking about this is David was of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. No one but those of the tribe of Levi had the right to wear an ephod. David said, I may not be able to wear the ephod at the temple because I'm not of the tribe of Levi, but I do know where I'm a priest, and that's in my own home. Give me the ephod. I'm going to be a priest in my own house. He strengthened himself in God and then went and be, became a priest to his own family. Could I say this, men? Let's stop letting the women make the spiritual decisions in our house. Let's get up and lead as men of God. No disrespect to our wonderful ladies. They've been forced to do what we as men were reluctant to do. They've prayed when it should have been us praying. They've read the Bible when it should have been us reading the Bible. 
They've taught our children when we're the ones that should be teaching them. Turn to a man near you and look at him and say, get your ephod on. Would you do that? Don't get your game on. Get your ephod on. Amen. Don't get your game on. Get your ephod on. There's too many people running game. You need a priestly garment right now. Put your priestly garment on. Be a man of God. Number three, after David got his ephod on, he went and sought God. Oh, Lord. Let me tell you when men are strong. It's when they find themselves at a place where they recognize their need of God and they bow their knee in prayer. Women can move God when they pray. Make no mistake about it. Hannah moved God when she prayed. Elizabeth moved God. Amen. I think of Mary. She moved God when she prayed. But let me tell you, when men bow a knee in their home and pray, God moves. Do you hear me? Heaven. Uh, heaven stops and comes to attention when men pray. You want to recover everything? Go be strengthened in God. Number two, get your ephod on. And number three, begin to seek God. And then number four, go get it back. Mm. 1 Samuel 30 and 17. David launched a full-scale attack. He fought from sunrise until sunset. You know how long you got to fight, men? You got to fight from the time the sun comes up until it goes down. You know when you quit fighting? You quit fighting when there's not another enemy left to cut in pieces. That's when you lay your sword down. When do you give up the struggle? When all of your kids are baptized and in the church and serving God. That's when you give up your struggle. When do you lay the sword down? Whenever your business is thriving and God is blessing you. And when do you quit? When your ministry is changing lives. You're at a point in your life where you look back over the, the years and say, I fought a good fight and I kept the faith and I finished my course. And you don't stop till then. You fight from sunrise to sundown. Tell somebody, get it on. Would you do that? Get it on. You want to battle? Here I am. Come on. Amen. I let you mess up my life, but I'm not letting you mess it up anymore. I've come to take back whatever thing you stole from me. You remember this face, devil, the last time you saw it. It was in a bar room somewhere, wasted or in a crack house. Take a good look. I come to get my own back now. Last time you saw me, I was in a divorce court. I was a loser. But I've come back to get mine now. Somebody in the building shout yes. Mm. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. Stand with me across the building. And in 1 Samuel 30, verses 18 through 19, it said, David recovered all, all, all the Amalekites had carried away. Look at your neighbor and make a prophecy over them. You can do it on the basis of this scripture because God is no respecter of persons. Say, God wants to give you everything back. 
everything back. God's, God wants to give you everything. You're going to recover it all, 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 all. But you're not just going to get it back. You're going to get it back with interest, 700%. Devil, you're going to rue the day you ever saw me. You're going to regret the day you ever messed with my life. You see me, devil? You're going to wish you had never known my name. All those nights in crack houses, all those nights laying on a barroom floor, amen, all of those nights when my life was messed up, sniffing cocaine, doing whatever else I was doing, lost in a world, making money, and that was my only interest, having fun, sports, whatever my life may have consisted of then, and I let things fall through my hands that you stole from me, but I'm here to get it back now. I'm here to get it back. It's redemption time now, devil. You beat me the last time, but you're not going to do it again. I've been in training somewhere in a secret camp with God. I've been somewhere alone with God. I found out I'm a priest of my home. I've come to take it back. I've come to take it back.